welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights, our podcast series where we talk to some of the most inspirational arbitration luminaries. And today, I'm delighted to say, as our guest, we have the one and only David Brynmore Thomas QC. Hello, David. Hello, Gerta. David, as many of you will know, is a, a huge figure in the international arbitration world. And of course, he also does litigation, but we're going to focus mainly in this podcast on uh, his work in the international arbitration field. Uh, David needs very little introduction, but I'm going to give him a little one. Uh, David is one of that select band of people who has not only been a partner in a major international law firm, but also uh, is a barrister and a Queen's counsel. And that gives him a unique perspective on so many things. He also sits regularly as an international arbitrator and has a wonderful reputation. And so I'm really delighted to be speaking with David. I've known David for many years. I've worked with him. I'm very fond of him. So hopefully all of that will come out in the course of this podcast. You know, one of the things that uh, I always like to ask is what inspired you to become a lawyer in the first place? I think it really goes back, actually, what I was interested in at school. I mean, it, it, you gave me a very nice introduction, and it's lovely. But I have to say, I never planned any of this. Um, <laughs> you can't sit down early in your career and say, I'm going to become a partner in Reed Smith or a partner in Herbert Smith or, or, or Queen's Council. And I think anyone who, who, who sort of tells you that they're going to, is it's a bit worrying. So when I was at school, I did a lot of debating. Um, it was one of the big things that I, that I did uh, for three, four years um, at secondary school, sort of competitive debating. And uh, I liked, I was no good at Latin. And in my school, if you were no good at Latin, you could do two things. You could do woodwork. Well, I was no, I was no good at woodwork. Or you could do economics. And so I took economics. Um, and I really enjoyed economics. <laughs> So that was fine, except my father was a medical academic. And so I'd grown up thinking that I wanted to do medicine. And I was good at sciences and I was good at maths. And it was one of those schools, if you say that you want to do medicine and you're good at the sciences, then people just say, yeah, that's fine. So I went and, you know, as many people know, I went off and I did medicine as my first degree at Edinburgh. And I practiced for a couple of years. But while I was doing medicine as an undergraduate, I realized that actually it wasn't where my heart lay. And people sometimes say to me, hold on, surely you want to help people. And I say, well, you know, you can form a view of me if you like, but I decided that I would actually rather do commercial law. Um, but that was because I enjoyed debating. I'd carried on debating at school. Uh, I carried on debating at university, still interested in economics, the business world, that kind of thing. So during my medical degree, I decided I would rather convert. And somebody then put me onto the uh, CPE, what's now the GDL. And so I ended up deciding to do that because of people who I then knew and talked to and, and that kind of thing. 
this whole commercial law lark looked like it might be quite fun. <laughs> and it has been, and you've excelled at it incredibly, David. And it really is, I mean, it's fascinating, David. You've got such incredible insights. And, uh, and I say this in all seriousness, I'm not being lighthearted about it. You are an incredibly talented person because to have your medical background and then convert into law, and then, as I alluded to in the introduction, you were a solicitor, you were a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills, one of the preeminent law firms in the world. I recall exactly when you moved to the bar because we were in touch at the time and you practiced as a barrister uh, for many years. And then a couple of years ago, 2019, uh, the, the wonderful accolade of Queen's Council was bestowed upon you. You are one of that very select band of people who've been senior in both the solicitor side of the profession and the barrister side. So I wonder whether you could just give us some thoughts as to what made you want to make the jump, having already made the jump from medicine to law, from being a solicitor to a barrister. I think I thought about coming to the bar when I moved to law in the late 1980s. I'm aging myself now. And at that time, a couple of very good friends said to me, look, if you go to the bar with a medical degree, you will end up doing medical work. Nothing wrong with that, but barristers, clerks, love them or hate them, will say, oh, I've got a young gentleman in chambers who's just done a medical degree, just a man for you. And I didn't have anything against medical negligence, personal injury. I've got very, very wonderful colleagues in chambers who, who do that kind of work. But I didn't want to be defined by what I had done as my first degree. And I was interested in commerce and business and that kind of thing. And so again, friends, one in particular, sort of guided me towards the city law firms. And that was fantastic. I think the insight you get into litigation, dispute, dispute strategy, but then also into transactions um, at a city law firm is in fact, I think, better than you get at the junior bar. Uh, you know, when I was a trainee solicitor, I worked in my first seat on a corporate finance transaction for Sky, as uh, short, shortly after the Sky B, B Sky B merger, um, which I wouldn't have got to do if I'd been at the bar. But then I ended up doing litigation at Herbert Smith. I ended up doing IP. I did real estate work as a as a trainee solicitor. So I got that breadth of training which I think is really, really marvellous at the city law firms and the big international firms. But I always had a, a, an advocacy itch, and I always wanted to carry on doing advocacy. And, and that was one of the things that attracted me to international arbitration, was the fact that I would be able to carry on doing advocacy. But I think, as you know perfectly well, there are huge demands on partners in large law firms. And Large law firm partners, in my experience, or certainly with with the city firms, it's very, very straightforward to do, and I don't mean straightforward as in easy peasy, but you can do two, three-day hearings, maybe a week-long hearing, but a much heavier hearing, it's, it just crushes you in terms of your other obligations as a law firm partner. And I realized eh, sometime 2006, 2007, I would guess, that one, I wanted to do longer, heavy hearings, which would be almost impossible if I stayed as a partner at a city law firm. And secondly, the sort of, even with the inroads that Herbert Smith and other people were making in terms of solicitor advocacy, 
I felt that my advocacy would only really move on a step if I actually practiced full time at the bar. So that was sort of what took me to the bar um, was was that desire actually to focus on advocacy. And the other nice thing about it is it, it, it also meant that I was able to sit as an arbitrator in a way that I wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. But I think it's really, if you really want to focus markedly on advocacy, um, the bar, although there are some wonderful, wonderful advocates coming out of the large law firms, I think if you really want to focus on advocacy, stepping away from the burdens that you have as a partner running a practice as you do, it, it makes it far easier to focus at the bar. Thank you, David. And, you know, and I, I completely identify with what you say, by the way. But, you know, there's no doubt that in doing what you've been doing, you've been an inspiration to many, many people. And that's a worldwide thing, because there are many, many people that you've worked with, who I'm aware of, who you and I both know, I won't name names, because discretion is always the better part of valour. But you've been an inspiration to so many people. But who've been your inspirations, David, as you've grown up in the profession? You must have had a number of inspirations and mentors. I mean, we talk about Herbert Smith and one of, I, mean, I guess, the biggest success story in terms of advocacy and becoming a judge is Lord Collins, who, of course, you know well. But who were your biggest inspirations and mentors as you were progressing through the profession? I think the first one um, go, actually goes back to the answer that I was giving a little while ago about why I came in, into a city law firm. A little bit of background. My mother was the administrator of the Energy Law Centre in Dundee. She wasn't a lawyer, but she was an university administrator. And one of the driving forces behind that was a, a, a wonderful retired Hungarian solicitor called Laszlo Gombosch. He'd come to the UK during the Second World War, he'd worked for British intelligence, um, and he'd ended up a senior partner with Theodore Goddard, now of course part of Adelshaw Goddard. And he'd had one of these wonderful sort of city solicitor practices back in the 60s and 70s, where he did everything from high, high net worth individuals to oil and gas. And so he'd ended up with the IBA, with the IBA Oil and Gas Committee. And so he'd been one of the driving forces behind setting up that centre in Dundee. And so he, when he knew that I was, he was in his 80s by that point, but when he knew that I was thinking about doing law, he talked to me about commercial law, about the city law firms, about what I could do. And he gave me that inspiration. He also posed the first sort of conflict of laws question. First time I ever realized that there was such a thing as conflict of laws. He said, you see, we have these interesting questions. Like if you're dealing with someone's estate in England and it's an English will, but when they died, they owned a yacht off the south of France. What's the law that applies to that? So he was an inspiration because he made me see that there was something with the city law firms that, that, that could be really incredibly exciting in terms of law and commerce. Then in terms of moving on to learning my trade, I suppose two people who I learned my trade from at Herbert Smith were, first of all, a wonderful construction partner called Michael Davis, who Herbert Smith had had a construction practice before Michael, but he really focused it, built it, and established the practice that others have then built on subsequent. Michael sadly developed cancer in the mid 2005, 2006, and, and died 
in, only in his 50s. But he taught me construction law. And he taught me construction law, engineering, projects, how to run a project dispute. He was a person who led the first arbitrations that I ever did. He taught me that sort of element of, of substantive law, which is still a big, big chunk of my practice. Energy work, infrastructure work, all that kind of thing. He laid the foundation for. And he was the person I worked for most in terms of fee earning when I was a, a, an assistant solicitor, as you and I were called back in the day. So Michael was an enormous inspiration to me. And then the other person was Herbert Smith, in terms of learning about international arbitration, of course, was Julian Liu, who I came across from, worked with from 1995 until he retired from Herbert Smith in 2005. And although Julian didn't do these sort of construction project type disputes that I was doing, he was marvelous at teaching international arbitration as a process, as a philosophy, uh, this idea that it wasn't just English litigation taking it behind closed doors that actually there's nothing to be afraid of if you're dealing with a law other than English law, a procedure other than English procedure. So Julian, I think, in terms of an approach to international arbitration. And then finally, and I'll probably get into big trouble for saying this, I had dinner with him last week, so he's still able to take me to task for it, would be my old roommate in Chambers, um, Edwin Glasgow QC. Ah, yes. And Edwin is just a marvellous person to share a room with. But really, I suppose, taking it in stages, Leslie Gombosch encouraged me, inspired me into the profession. Michael Davis and Julian Liu inspired me in terms of learning my trade. Edwin Glasgow is just a marvellous individual and inspiration to see how to be a senior lawyer, a truly senior lawyer, far more senior than I am or I might ever achieve. And he's, he's just fantastic. One of the things that I think I see with Edwin is he treats everybody in exactly the same way. He treats everyone with respect, with affection, and that's despite his history and roots in the profession. And he is just inspirational, in my view, in, in terms of seeing what a truly great senior lawyer should look like if I'm ever lucky enough to make it that far. So those four. Those are the four I would. Then the other people who I won't name check are clients. Not all of them, but I've had a few clients, and in fact, I've had a couple of clients with you who have been really marvelous business people, marvelous entrepreneurs, where their disputes are a business issue. They get on with it, and they're just they're just lovely to help them get over their business problem. So I, I count them as well. But uh, like some of the other lawyers, I wouldn't name check them. Fascinating. You know, I find this question always one of the most insightful because we are only what we are because of those who've inspired us and mentored us. So I found that's wonderful to hear. And in fact, one little snippet I learned, in fact, from you informally last week was that Edwin Glasgow used to be a policeman before he became a lawyer. That's right. Which is another fascinating career change because, uh, I mean, Edwin's <laughs> obviously a very statesman. QC and, and as you say, an incredible, incredible name and reputation. So, no, thank you for answering that question so candidly. Now, one of the things that I mentioned at the outset is, David, and as you've also mentioned, is that you sit regularly as an arbitrator. And that obviously takes up a significant amount of your time as well as your time as an advisor. Now, one of the things that's always fascinating to me and many others 
that I know is the dual role of being a counsel and an arbitrator, because the qualities that those roles ask of you are, of course, different. So I wonder whether you could just give us some insights as to what it's like on the one hand, acting as a counsel and that role, and then on, and on the other, acting as an arbitrator, be it a soul or a member of three or a chair of a tribunal. I wonder if you could give us some thoughts on that, please, David. It's an interesting question. I think one of the first observations I'd make is, obviously, we start off the career path that you and I have come through as advisors and counsel and advocates. Um, and there's a point when, we, when we're doing that and we've never actually sat as arbitrator. And you do get some other people who come through and they sit as arbitrator and they've never been counsel. So I am always conscious that where I am professionally now, when I'm counsel, next week I may be sitting as arbitrator. When I'm arbitrator last week or next week, I may be counsel. And I, they give me insights. Each gives me an insight into the, into, into the role of the other. One of the things I'm always conscious of, I think, is I sometimes joke that in any given arbitration, there are three lawyers at least fighting for control of the room, the chairman and both advocates. And you do see that. Um, and I think, again, it's one of the things that sometimes it helps if you're an arbitrator realizing what a counsel is trying to do. Sometimes as counsel realizing that no, you need to actually perform your role and let the tribunal perform their role and you need to sort of step back a bit and, and allow things to, to proceed. As counsel, you are obviously partial. That is within the bounds of professional obligations. But you take up cudgels for your client. And that is one of the enjoyable parts of the job, quite honestly, is, is, is being right in the trenches with your client, pushing their case. When you are an arbitrator, you have to put that to one side. You really do until you finally sign the award. You are holding everything in a kind of suspense until you finally make up your mind. And I have heard it observed that some people who people criticize in terms of how they are when they're on the bench. I've heard some people say, yes, but you've got to realize that they were a great advocate. They were a really good advocate, but they didn't turn into being a good judge because they, they were never able to put that uh, partiality to one side. Um, equally, you can't take that impartiality that you learn on the bench and take it with you when, you, when you're counseled. You can't look at things from every side in front of a tribunal and examine things from every perspective because the tribunal wants you just to put your case. It's great for preparing cases because you can think, well, I know, I know better what I would do if I was on the other side. I know what, how I would respond to this argument if I was in the tribunal. But it's that sort of degree of, as I say, partiality on the one hand when you're counsel and suspended partiality when you're arbitrator on the other hand. And I say suspended partiality because, yes, I mean, the normal word we use is impartiality. And as an arbitrator, you have to be impartial. But in fact, what in my experience you're doing as an arbitrator is you are holding your decision. You're, you're not letting it crystallize until the very end. That's really what you're doing. And if you're partial, it will just crystallize straight away. But in the end, you've got to let your decision crystallize. And so it's holding that, holding that decision, holding your views until at the very last minute, yes, 
you come down to, to a position. And when you come down to that position as an arbitrator, at that point, I think you are every bit as convinced as your position as you are when you are an advocate. But the difference is that actually what you're going to do is sign an award, send it to, the, to everyone and say, right, this is the answer. I have in the past come to the end of an arbitration as a sole arbitrator. Partly in an attempt to get parties to settle, I have said to the parties, look, what happens now is I go away, I think about the evidence, I think about your submissions, I will write my award, one of you will be disappointed. And you have to be willing to do that. You cannot ultimately not keep everyone happy. You have to be prepared to disappoint someone. And at that point, you do come full circle back to your skills as an advocate, because you start off being partial, advocating a position against the other side. And as an arbitrator, when you finally sign your award, you finally sign an award, which will be disappointing for one side. Fascinating, David. No, it really is. I just, you know, those different hats that we will have to wear sometimes, you know, do ask us different questions. So it's really good to hear your thoughts on that. And it's, it's a kind of thing, I mean, it's a kind of exercise which you have to go through as a partner in a law firm. Mm-hmm. You know, there will be times when you are developing people, not forming an opinion, not doing things, mm-hmm. helping someone. And then there comes a time when you have to say to someone, it's this, you won't be promoted, you will be promoted. You're getting this case, you're not getting this case. You're, we're all trained to do that exercise. Yeah. No, you're right, David. Absolutely. You know, another ongoing thing, which you and I have discussed on a panel together at GAR and continues to be an ongoing debate, is what we can all do to make the arbitration process better, a bit more nimble, a bit more fit for purpose, a bit more rolling with the times, whatever, however we describe it. Arbitration, no doubt, as we all know, is now the dispute resolution mechanism of choice for international business. And we've all seen over our careers the huge growth and acceptance of arbitration. And it continues to grow. But of course, the process can be improved. So I just wonder what your thoughts are about how we could seek to improve arbitration. You know, just a few thoughts. I mean, I'm not looking to put words in your mouth, David, but but one of the things that I'm always a little frustrated at is how sometimes we can't have summary dispositions in arbitration in the same way that one could have them in a litigation or seek one at least in litigation. So I wonder what your thoughts on that, David. And of course, you, you shouldn't overstep any boundaries. You, you, you don't want to overstep, of course. Summary disposition is a great idea. Um, and actually, the fact that we can't have summary disposition, I think, in some ways goes to what I think the problem is with arbitration nowadays, which is we are, and I'm probably as guilty of, of this as anyone else, we are all too fascinated by the intricacies of international arbitration. And I think we forget, actually, that all we're doing is solving commercial disputes. They may be very complex commercial disputes. They may be very high-value commercial disputes. We get both of them. But sometimes I think in the last 20 years, we have put so much complexity in terms of the theory of international arbitration that actually we're running into problems with that. Now, if you summary disposition is... I think a great idea. It serves the purpose that I think businessmen, businesswomen would ask for. They just want their disputes resolved. And frankly, if someone's running a case that isn't a proper case, it should just be got rid of. But we then 
tend to disappear into theory as to what do the ICC rules say about when a case can be decided? What does the New York Convention say about process and, and that sort of thing? What do the interchild rules say? What do the model laws say? All of those things, we analyze the point where we end up saying summary, summary determination would be a good idea, but we can't do it. And I think that's my big concern is over the last 20 years, international arbitration has become so fascinating that it's become overcomplicated. A few years ago, Sul America in the Court of Appeal was the only English case on the choice of law uh, as to the arbitration agreement. We've had two cases in the Supreme Court in the last year on the law applicable to the arbitration agreement, not the merits, not the process, the arbitration agreement. We've had two cases in the Supreme Court in the last year. It seems to me that at the point when we're doing that, we really are making the whole process very complicated. And I, I sometimes say to students, I say, look, arbitration is like a watch or a clock. All these ideas that we have, arbitrability, party autonomy, competence, competence, the various applicable laws, they're like the component parts of this machine that we have. And what that machine is for is to determine parties' commercial disputes. And if you give commercial people a number, X owes Y $100 million, X is good for the money, then X will pay them, and that's fine. But it's like a clock. All you want a clock to do is tell the time. The moment when you can see the cogs and the levers laid out on the bench, it may be very interesting, but the one thing you have or you don't have is a clock that will tell you what time it is. And in the same way, when we take arbitration and we pull out all these concepts and we're actually starting to debate and litigate and have satellite litigation about questions which fascinate us all, we don't actually have a machine that just works out what the answer is to the party's disputes. So I wish, I wish we'd get simpler. I agree. And uh, no, again, fascinating. Thank you, David. To end the podcast, because regrettably, whilst I could talk to you for ages... <laughs> Likewise. These, unfortunately, these podcasts have to be of a certain length. And so I'm, I must respect that. But let me end with a few sort of more lighthearted and fun questions. Have you got a favorite holiday destination, David? Yeah, I quite like anywhere with a steep ski resort um, and a bar <laughs> at the bottom. My wife doesn't really ski or snowboard. So actually, I have to say a, a steep ski hill with a bar at the bottom and, and good shopping behind that. Anywhere that fulfills that kind of definition um, will generally keep me pretty happy. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you've got some time when you're not going through uh, papers or working on an award or, or the like, and you can play some music, what sort of music do you like listening to? Any bands, groups, type of music? I have the most appallingly broad taste in music imaginable. So I woke up this morning with Beat Surrender by the jam going through my head. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Actually, this morning, I went listening to a big chunk of the jam. I like Frank Turner, the sort of British or English um, folk and punk singer. But then I like jazz. If I'm working, I quite like listening to non-vocal jazz. I've been listening to a, an Australian musician who we went to see about a month ago called Kate Pass, who does Persian-inspired jazz. And I like sort of uh, the American soprano Rennie Fleming, I think has a transparently beautiful voice. So I listen to that, but I can't work 
and have words going on. So uh, my, my musical tastes are just appallingly broad. It, unfortunately, if you walked in and I was listening to headphones or whatever, you probably wouldn't be able to tell what was coming through them. Oh, I know. You know, I must say, uh, I mean, I've got a, a broad music taste too, but uh, when you mentioned the jam and you know, they're just an incredible group and they've had such a big influence. And, you know, Paul Weller has been such a huge figure in the music world, um, from the jam to the Star Council to them going solo. And he's, he's very soulful at heart. So whilst some still call him the mod father, he's obviously moved on a great deal in his musical taste. He's incredible. He's, he really is. One last thing, uh, David, I promise you my last question. Have you got a favourite film that really sticks out for you? Probably Blade Runner, which I just think is... Uh, the plot, I think, is great in its various manifestations. I think the cinematography is is marvellous. And also, it was just... Again, I'm ageing myself, but it was just one of those great 1980s films at the time, which felt like a real film, you know, sort of, properly going to the cinema and, and looking at something. And I actually like, uh, I like the work of Philip K. Dick. I quite like reading science fiction. And so I like Philip K. Dick. And so I, I, I like uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the short story that that's based on. So I like the way that that all fits together. So yeah, Blade Runner. That's a great choice, David. That's a great choice. Well, thank you very, very much for being such a wonderful guest on this podcast. It's been an absolute delight to speak to you. Whilst I've known you for many, many years, and I've never had the chance to talk to you in this fashion because, because, we, because you know, we've had many, many a conversation, but never one like this. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. I know our listeners will enjoy it when this podcast is published. So thank you very, very much. And uh, we're recording this on a Friday. So I do wish you a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much. See you very soon, David. Thank you, Gautam. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.